Hello and welcome to the 39th episode of Tailoring in Conversation. My name is Reza and in this series I'll be talking to tailors, business owners, cloth merchants and other industry participants from all around the globe to gain a better insight into their worlds. My guest for today is Thomas von Nordheim. Thomas is a master tailor, couturier and costume maker based in Kent, England. Some of you may know him from his couture masterclasses on Teachable or his work for the film Phantom Thread featuring Daniel Day-Lewis. In our conversation today, we're going to be talking about Thomas's background, couture, film productions, tailoring education, and much more. So let's get started. Thomas, you just mentioned that you are in your studio now and your studio is in Kent, is that correct? Yes, in Folkestone. So is this the place where you see your clients work with all the different materials that you're working with record your uh, educational videos e yes it's um it's basically a place where i carry out my actual craft um mm -hmm. i have some local clients um but the majority of my clients is still london based mm -hmm. um, so i'm a member of a club in london where i see clients in central London um, and it's very easy for me to get to it's under an hour um, it's fast train um, some some clients depending on what I'm working on I'm, I'm working a lot on film costumes lately mm -hmm. and sometimes the designers come here um, and we all you know have a meeting and um, because I'm contributing towards the design often mm -hmm. I have a big of fabrics and trimmings which sometimes get incorporated in the designs and I have a very big collection of actual garments here dresses mm -hmm. and, and mm -hmm. um, my own archive so to say plus yeah. historical garments so it's a, it's a bit of a, a hub for making I call it my laboratory yeah well that's a good name to call it yeah yes so do you work by yourself there or do you have a team of people? No, I basically work my, by myself. Mm -hmm. um, it depends how busy I am. I do have mm -hmm. some people that I can draw upon. Um, some of them are specialized in things, so mm -hmm. they'll be helping me. But um, generally, I, I do things myself, so I'm a, I'm a one-man band. Yes, um, well... <laughs> Which, which has advantages and disadvantages, of course. Um, mm. I have never, I've never thought about employing someone or having an, an apprentice because there's periods when you are just not busy. Mm -hmm. And it's then difficult to keep someone, you know, mm -hmm. doing something. So it's, it's always been a kind of, you know, funny situation. But, mm. and obviously good people, if you need someone, then, you know, they might have another job. Because it, it yes. can sometimes, especially when it's costumes, you know, the, the, the schedules are sometimes very tight. Mm -hmm. and, um, but I've always managed, so. <laughs> mm -hmm. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, I, I do agree with you that it's very difficult to not only find the right apprentice, but also accommodate for them in, in all different ways, whether it's going to be their travel, their their. Uh, uh, pay their monthly salary, their their skills that they're going to learn. It's very yeah. difficult. I, yeah. I definitely sympathize with that. So, Thomas, um, 
I, I am familiar with your work, but for, for those who are going to be watching this and who are listening, who aren't familiar with your work, could you give like a brief, brief background of where you come from, how you got started, and how you kind of like transitioned into what you're doing now? Okay, so I am German-born. I grew up in Dusseldorf, and mm -hmm. I started my um, career by doing a apprenticeship, a traditional apprenticeship in ladies' tailoring. Mm -hmm. um, and why ladies tailoring? Um, well, it's so we're talking here late eighties, um, mm -hmm. and it it hasn't. I mean, if anything, I think it's gone worse. Even getting mm -hmm. uh, an apprenticeship, um, Dusseldorf is quite a big and wealthy city, so there was quite a lot of couture houses and men's tailors too, mm -hmm. um, which could have supplied me with an apprenticeship, gave me the opportunity to to learn that, but it was very, very difficult to to get a, a place because mm -hmm. it was basically so much competition. Mm -hmm. So my grandmother knew one of the big designers um, who was famous in the 50s and 60s. So he was already elderly by then, but he had a big atelier still. And uh, so she tried to get me in there, but it, it, it was not possible and um, I then had an old school friend who, mm. whose mother knew someone who was the secretary of an architect whose wife had this couture salon. <laughs> right, so right. Talking a few corners here. Mm -hmm. And um, so she knew what, what my ambitions were and she organized for me to have an interview. Mm -hmm. This is how how I finally. And got how in. old were you then? Twenty one. Twenty one. Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so yeah. So I had I had done my I had done my art school. I had done my A levels and um, had I done my community service? I can't mm -hmm. remember. Um, anyway, so this 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 then happened, um, and it was for three years. Mm -hmm. Um. It was um, uh, quite tough, I must say. In what um, ways? Um, well, the woman, the woman to start with, was a tough cookie. Yeah, she mm. she had herself um, trained. Uh, she had worked for a while uh, with Dior in Paris, mm -hmm. from the stories that I heard, and. Um, so the, the quality of craftsmanship was very, very high and very, mm -hmm. very old fashioned. I mean, we're talking, doing things like they were done in the 1950s and this was already mm -hmm. like late eighties. So our, right. our atelier was famous for its craftsmanship in terms of mm -hmm. hand being handmade. Mm -hmm. So it, it was, um, it was quite a large, um, establishment. There was a boutique on the ground floor, which was selling luxury ready to wear. Mm -hmm. like Shiruti and Shara and she for a while also had a, a Dior boutique mm -hmm. uh, licensed to her in, in Dusseldorf. And um, on the first floor, we had a big salon um, and the, the workrooms. Um, we had three departments. There was the tailoring department, uh, mm -hmm. which had the, the cutter, 
Carter Master Taylor and five tailors and about five apprentices we must have been. Mm-hmm. And then there were two dressmaking departments, which which were, again, they had their um, head of department, which is called the Directrice in Germany, mm-hmm. um, going by the, by the French. And so they had about 10 journeymen, as we mm-hmm. call them. Um, so very skilled dressmakers, some of which had been working there for 30 years. Um, and Why were them, they called journeymen? Journeyman is what you become after your apprenticeship. So you do your apprenticeship for three years, mm-hmm. and then you are technically a journeyman. And you can carry on doing this for mm-hmm. the rest of your life, or if you are ambitious, you can do mm-hmm. a master um, mm-hmm. a, a ma- you become a master tailor, but it mm-hmm. takes three or four years to go through this process. So you have to you have to go back to school, and um, right. then there's an examination run by the. It's all run by the tailors' guild in mm-hmm. Germany. It, it's very um, regimental in that sort of sense. It's mm-hmm. all very tightly controlled. I think it's relaxed in mm-hmm. the meantime, but. Um, the guild is still quite strong. So why is it called a journeyman? I have no idea. I mean, I, I looked it up, what it means in English, and, and that's what it tells you. Uh-huh, okay, yeah. okay. Um, I'm not sure whether it's from journey as in your professional journey. Mm-hmm. But, but they, they, it's, it's not that they are traveling, like traveling no. craftsmen or something. No. Okay, okay. no, no, no. That's only the, the carpenters doing that. I see, I see. Okay. So, so Thomas, you are sketching out some sort of an image for us uh, in regards to how you started, where you went, and uh, how the structure roughly was. I, I know very little about uh, the German tailoring industry um, in general. I do know that there are a lot of books and systems have been published in Germany yes. uh, throughout the years. But... I, I, I haven't experienced the German tailoring industry or the couture industry. How would you describe that at the time that you were there in terms of the educational factors? What sort yeah. of clientele did you have? And mm-hmm. uh, what was people's attitude towards tailoring? I mean, you mentioned a guilt and that guilt was very strict. Um, could you give some more information about how that was? Yeah, yeah. Um, so... Again, I can only talk from what it was like then because mm-hmm. I'm not really in, 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 you know, up to date with what it's like now. I have heard from some people that um, certain things have relaxed. So basically any, any handcraft um, profession is mm-hmm. regulated by a guild. Mm-hmm. So there's the guild of hairdressers. If you want to become a hairdresser, you have to go through a training. Mm-hmm. You have to go and work in a... In a hair salon and you have to go to a vocational school mm-hmm. and it's the same thing as three years and then you have to do your examination at the end so you need to know i don't know how to dye a certain hair color how to cut hair a certain way so all these mm-hmm. sort of things so um i was quite um well um surprised to hear when i came to england that here it's very easy so you can open your your hairdresser, you know, like you, you just open a shop basically and uh, yeah. you don't have to have any um, qualification whatsoever. 
Mm-hmm. And um, so this is completely this is completely different. And um, I think I think it has historical background, of course, mm-hmm. it must have um, to protect the the craft itself, but also to protect customers from having any kind of rogue um, mm-hmm. craftspeople selling you mm-hmm. services or products that are not up to scratch. Mm-hmm. I would I would imagine. Um, also, the system of having to choose what sort of um, specific subject you you want to to do. So let's say it's it's the same for other crafts too. Um, I know an, an equivalent um, in um, in shoemaking. So there's mm-hmm. different processes that you you never learn the whole thing. Mm-hmm. This is to keep the people separate so yeah. they could then not go and open their own business. Yeah. I think, yeah. I think that's the historical context to this. Mm-hmm. And um, so, of course, when you do an, a tailoring apprenticeship, yes, you do learn everything from A to Z. But mm-hmm. during the three years of my apprenticeship, I had never made a whole jacket from start to finish. And that's because of that structure of keeping you kind of like um, uh, well, it away. was it was it was time constraints and also how the apprentices were being used. Mm-hmm. I must, yeah, the term used is is actually quite fitting. So um, how would how were you used? Let's say. Um, so, we we started at eight in the morning, and the first hour of the day was spent tidying and cleaning, basically. Mm-hmm. So um, we. Um, were basically responsible for the for the running of the of the of the atelier um, mm-hmm. anything they needed doing, and then the the head tailor he would tell you uh, or ask you to um, go and bring his lottery ticket to the to the shop you know that sort of thing, and uh, I heard I heard I mean it never happened to me but I heard from other apprentices at vocational school. They mm-hmm. had to iron the underwear of their um, their designer's husband. So that's the sort of things that apprentices were. Oh my god! I mean, that's, that's probably that's <laughs> probably quite an extreme, in a, quite an extreme. But you know what I mean? It's a sort of yes, yeah. So basically, anything, <clears throat> or it's like you know, um, Thomas, can you go uh, across the street and get a, a chicken leg for? Um, a client's dog or you know cigarettes or something like that so basically you were you weren't just sitting there and and learning yeah well let me tell you something in line with what you said i was doing my apprenticeship and we had a work experience uh, person that kind of like uh you know doing the things that you're describing and one day we had a client who walked in with a small pug and my boss just said uh you know is is I'll, I'll conceal the name of the boy, but he was like, hey, uh, could you just entertain the dog, please? <laughs> and he was just yeah. playing with the dog. <laughs> it, sound, it sounds a bit like that, yes. So, okay. so my, my, my first, I, I remember my first day when I came to work, um, Mrs. Lang, that was her name, she arrived. She had an Alfa Romeo and it was mm. summer. I started in early September. And um, it was a coupe, so it was open. She had three um, silk terriers, mm-hmm. which were called Chiffon, Georgette, and 
satin. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you couldn't make it up, but they yeah. were sitting next to her in the car and she parked the car in front of the, of the, of the shop. And I was given the keys and said, can you go and park this for me in the underground <laughs> parking? And um, I said, um, I had a driving license, but I, I, they politely declined and said, I wouldn't like to take the risk and mm-hmm. the responsibility of, uh, for the car. And I was, mm-hmm. I was never asked again. So right. I, I, um, there was, there was often some friction because Mm -hmm. I, I was, um, brought up to be quite independent and not, and to also question things. And, um, I didn't like the kind of system of the, you know, the hierarchy. Mm -hmm. Um, so I sometimes answered back and, so mm-hmm. it, it didn't do me many favors, but um, f- from um, from a technical um, perspective, um, I mean, obviously at the time I was very young. I didn't I didn't appreciate mm-hmm. what I was learning because I had no comparison. Mm-hmm. But retrospectively, it's the best thing that I've that I've ever done. And um, mm-hmm. so there was another apprentice. Um, who also wasn't very happy and we had to like basically support each other during the three mm-hmm. years, you know, mm-hmm. after a year it was like, Oh, I can't deal with this anymore. You know, I'm going to leave. And then, Oh, we've already done a year and it's only another two years. And then, you know, mm-hmm. after a year and a half, now we've done half and, you know, we can't leave <laughs> now. So it was, it was really like that. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, it was, it was, um, it was very interesting. Um, the, um, you asked about the clientele, mm-hmm. so they were, they were, um, so it wasn't young, fashionable ladies. It was more mature, not mm-hmm. old, but like mature, mm-hmm. um, I would say. And they had their classic, because I was in the tailoring department. I I'm, I made classic um, skirt suits, occasionally mm-hmm. trousers. So. Mm-hmm. In the first year of my apprenticeship, um, one of my jobs was to baste up things for fitting. So tailor tacking everything. And I remember we had one client. She must have been, I don't know, hip size 50 or something. So it was big. And she Mm. used to wear pleated skirts. So the pleats were one inch deep. So you can imagine like, you know, joining panels. And she usually had small checks. Mm -hmm. Oh. I can imagine how, I mean, for a first fitting, we didn't press or sew anything. Everything mm-hmm. was basted together and everything had to be like lined up and the checks matching. Mm-hmm. And it, I mean, it took me like two days just to mm-hmm. prepare um, a skirt for a fitting. But yeah. And then, and then, um, so then we would, then we would do things like, it was always done on clients' garments, but like I said mm-hmm. earlier, it was never from start to finish. Mm-hmm. So I would I would get a collar, and I had to pad stitch a collar, or I had to. I was given a pair of sleeves, and then I had to make the sleeves or buttonholes on this or that, or lining mm-hmm. something like that. So it was never a whole. It was never a whole thing. Mm-hmm. However, um, I had already started sewing before I did my apprenticeship. So um, obviously I didn't really know. It was basically like 
like I thought it was done. And I, mm. I asked a few. Um, yes, I remember now. I did. I had done. I had done my community service instead of army before I did my apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. Because there was um, there was an old lady in the in the um, in the club I was working. She was in her eighties and she was a tailoress, mm-hmm. and um, she was still sewing things for her granddaughter. And she showed me a few sort of things. So mm-hmm. I thought I knew a lot already. So when I came to my to do my apprenticeship, I would bring them up. And um, so, in example. How do you get the distance correct between the button and the and the jacket? You have this little stem. So yeah. she told me to put a matchstick between them and then make the make the little right. stem. Yeah. So and then when I when I was um, taught how to sew on a button at 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 work, um, I brought this up and I said, No, no, we don't do this here. This is like, you know, completely unprofessional. <laughs> so, you know, it was. Um, Mm-hmm. Yeah, they had they had their own ways of doing mm-hmm. things, and and this is how it was done. And it was when when someone started working there, um, mm-hmm. they would say, "Well, forget everything you've learned so far. We're doing things differently here." Yes, yes, well, that's that's a very tricky situation because I always think about this when when thinking about my own apprenticeship, but also uh, doing the 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 Newham course that I did before I joined uh, the tailors that I joined. It was very wow. funny because you learn you learn one way of doing something, and your yeah. teacher is convinced that that is the way. And then yeah. you go to the tailoring house, and they are convinced that what you've learned is wrong, and that their way is correct. Yeah. Um, so this is what I've always been telling my students. So I've mm-hmm. been teaching at Lund College of Fashion for seventeen years. Couture yeah. tailoring wow. class. Seventeen um, one seven. Yes. That's a very long time. Wow. Yes. Uh, this has come to an end now for one reason or another. I won't elaborate mm-hmm. on it. But sure. um, um, so this was only twice a year and it, was, it, was, um, it wasn't full-time students or degree students. It was, it mm-hmm. was short courses. So anybody I could see. join. So mm-hmm. um, in the beginning, it was, more, it was more domestic market. It was sometimes... Mm-hmm. Mm, ladies who had been sewing when they were younger and then they had a career and they wanted to get back to doing tailoring mm-hmm. or sometimes it was it was um, young people who wanted to study fashion and just wanted to learn more about it it was also um, I had a I had a, um, a, um, people who were sent by their employers so they could mm-hmm. have been designers or buyers I had a, a whole lot from from costs. I think three of them, they were sent to do my course just for them to get a better understanding about what Mm -hmm. it's about. Not that they would necessarily use what they've learned. It was just for them to, to know what it's all about. So, Mm -hmm. um, I have always taught my students, this is what I tell you. This is how I do things, but this is Mm -hmm. not the gospel truth. Yes. This is Mm -hmm. just one way of doing it. Mm -hmm. And, um, what I think is very, very important is, um, which I've done throughout my teaching, is to explain why you are doing things. Mm-hmm. Because then the person understands it and can, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I think it's better for them to remember. Mm-hmm. If you know why you're doing something, then it will become natural. You don't then mm-hmm. have to think about it anymore. So yes. instead of telling someone, 
you do this and then this and then this. Mm-hmm. This is how it's done. Mm-hmm. It goes in here and it comes out there. And it's, I, it's, but if they know why they're doing certain things, mm-hmm. um, that's, that's always, um, I found um, in also, you know, very important for, yeah. for someone who is learning to, to know. And also, really making them understand there's not just one right and one wrong way there's just different mm-hmm. ways yeah yeah when you are more experienced you you will know you learn how you apply certain techniques to a certain mm-hmm. project mm-hmm. so i have worked for many different places after my mm-hmm. apprenticeship and they all did things differently mm-hmm. and um so i've always learned something new so mm-hmm. I, I picked then what I wanted to, you know, remember and, and mm-hmm. could apply it to a future project. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I totally agree. And I think so, it's important for students to understand that when they are learning something, it's not the first and the last thing that they are ever going to learn. But no. They have to have the ability to take that and apply it multiple times. And places. you never stop learning. I mean, I, mm-hmm. I, I don't know everything. That's, I mean, that's mm. basically, I can't make a Milanese buttonhole. I've never done it, mm. you know? Well, you haven't done it, you say, but if you would do it, then you would be able to know how to do it. Yes, probably. But it, like I said, it, it's, it's, you know, you, you, you have to explore things. Mm. It's, it's, um, so one example, when, when, where I trained, um, we, so I did ladies, tailoring mm-hmm. um which is which is different from gents hard tailoring if you want mm-hmm. however i was trained the, the head cutter and master tailor he was a, a men's tailor by that was his background mm-hmm. so he, he was a men's tailor in the 50s and 60s and he had moved on to ladies tailoring for i don't know what the reason was but mm-hmm. um so what we did technically was a mix between the two. Mm-hmm. So we would use um, hair canvas in every jacket mm-hmm. um, with pad stitching. And we had certain way of um, staying the edges. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have since discovered that, um, yes, a lot of people do things very differently. Mm-hmm. So, um in the hems, we used um, silk organza, mm-hmm. and we would also press the hems really um, sharp. Mm-hmm. Which in ladies tailoring, like, well, I can't, um, traditional ladies tailoring is more soft tailoring. Mm-hmm. So some places I've worked in, they have used um, linen, you know, mm-hmm. duck um, canvas in the. In the fronts, sometimes cut on the bias, and it's mm-hmm. it it gives you a different result every time. Mm-hmm. Um, we have we have mounted uh, whole jackets on organza, mm-hmm. then added n- n- other layers or used cotton domat depending on what the fabric was. Mm-hmm. So this was not something that I had ever done where I trained. So when mm-hmm. I came to London, I worked for one designer um, and they made jackets completely different, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. differently. And um, 
so yes it, it it's 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 interesting so let, let's i'd like to talk a little bit about couture because you obviously did your apprenticeship in germany then you moved to london at some point and you worked for for a, a very steady couture house can, can you tell us a little bit about how you ended up there and uh how the whole trajectory was a little bit um okay so <laughs> i had finished my apprenticeship and then um instead of staying where i trained um mm. and becoming you know a journeyman for another few years and basically working there i decided my plan was to come to london i had mm -hmm. this plan a long time before i i i, I knew quite london quite well i used to come to london mm -hmm. twice three times a year um for for extended periods um mm -hmm. and my plan was to study fashion at um st martin's mm -hmm. so that was that was my plan and um so the year after my apprenticeship finished i prepared a portfolio mm -hmm. and um, applied to different colleges. So my first choice was St. Martin's and then mm -hmm. it was London College of Fashion and Wimbledon School of Art. Mm -hmm. So I had, I had um, interviews um, at Wimbledon and I decided against it. And London College of Fashion, I was told, was very technically orientated. And because I had mm -hmm. already done my apprenticeship, Mm -hmm. I basically knew how to, you know, make a make a garment. I, I again didn't want to do this. And at St. Martin's, my portfolio got lost. Um, oh, it did turn up again, but uh, it, it's a long story. But um, so so this it 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 didn't happen basically. Mm -hmm. So um, so this was the summer of ninety. Three, I think ninety ninety three or ninety four. <laughs> ninety three. 93 I, I, I was one years old <laughs> oh my god this makes me feel very old um so um i was in touch with a designer in london mm -hmm. who was german he was from dusseldorf and he mm -hmm. had been working with an art worker at the atelier where i was an apprentice Mm -hmm. So she had made the contact and um, I did see this this person when I came to London. It was um, two guys, basically, and they were, um, he had been working for a designer called Victor Edelstein. I'm not sure if mm -hmm. you've ever heard of him. He was, he was quite famous at the time. He made lots of um, um, dresses and, and garments for the Princess of Wales. Mm -hmm. He was one of the clients. So he had been working there and then he went by himself uh, with a business partner. Mm -hmm. And um, they were based in a, in a flat in, in Pimlico, in the basement of a flat. Mm -hmm. um, and I went there to see them a few times when I was in London. And then when they realized I had finished my apprenticeship, their business was expanding. They were getting more clients. Mm -hmm. um, they asked me if I wanted to work for them so mm -hmm. um, I had nothing lined up and um, they were just going into collection time so they were very very busy and I had to make a decision within a couple of weeks um, he then organized for me to be able to stay with a friend mm -hmm. in, um, in South London so this part was already sorted out and mm -hmm. so I basically said yes 
Sure. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this this is how I I came to London. I I I kept my flat in Düsseldorf for another mm-hmm. two or three years. Um, so I was going back and forth. At times, mm-hmm. I I also worked for another designer in Düsseldorf. Mm-hmm. Um, but this went on for I think about three years. Um, then I was working freelance in London for a few couturiers. There was someone called Donald Campbell. Mm-hmm. He had um, two shops, one in Chelsea, one in Knightsbridge. And I did sort of, I worked I worked from my house then. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was, it was, they would give me the patterns and I would mm-hmm. make something. I see. It was, I it see. was, it was luxury ready to wear, basically. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was no fittings. Um, and then 97, 96, I think it was 96, um, I heard that La Chasse was looking for a tailor. Mm-hmm. And um, I had heard of La Chasse because it's a it was a very historical um, couture house in London. So mm-hmm. Hardy Amis had worked there before uh, the war. Mm-hmm. They had a um, few other famous designers in the 1950s. So I went there and had a, I had a, an interview. They were, they were originally based in... Um, in, so they were, I think they were founded in in the late twenties, mm-hmm. and um, the couture trade was all based in in Mayfair, mm-hmm. around Berkeley Square. That was the sort of uh, um, Bond Street. That's where all the the court dressmakers were and mm-hmm. ladies ladies tailors. Mm-hmm. So La Chasse was in in Farm Street in a in an old coach house, which is still there, mm-hmm. and. Um, they had the whole house. It was it was really really big, um, and they were specialized in tweeds, making mm-hmm. hence the name La Chasse. Mm-hmm. Yes, French for hunt. So it was it was basically sports sports couture. Mm-hmm. So, so very upmarket sporty clothing in British fabrics. Mm-hmm. And so they were famous for that. And Hardy Amis, I can't remember when he joined, but in the in the thirties, one of the things he did, he made tweed uh, an acceptable fabric to wear like mm-hmm. all day, and even in London, it was mm-hmm. before tweed was only worn in the country. Yeah. Um, so this is one of their. It's not. It's not. It's not a well-known fashion house, and historically, mm-hmm. it is. It's not very important, but people who who know they they come across the name, mm-hmm. and um, so Hardy Amis, of course, opened by himself um, uh, in in the late forties, and um, he he got he got to work for um, the Queen. Mm-hmm. Which is something Lachasse always wanted, but never, never did. <laughs> um, so when I when I started working for them, the the, the same designer uh, who had started there in 1949, 
Mm. He had he had become the sole owner in the 1970s. Mm-hmm. He was in his 80s then. Mm-hmm. Um, so the house had to move in the 80s because the lease of the house in Farm Street was not renewed. So they moved to a shop in South Kensington, where they were until they closed in the in, I think it was 2004. Mm-hmm. Um, and of course the trade had declined and they were becoming smaller and smaller. Mm-hmm. Clients were getting older and older and gradually died off. Mm-hmm. And this is this is what happened to a lot of businesses, you know. Um, so so some companies, um, so like Hardy Amy's, they of course tried to reinvent the house mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, with Jacques Azaguri, I think it was, who was brought in. And um, there was someone else, and I can't recall his name, but they tried to make it all modern and really mm. fresh. So we had some clients like um, Lady Spencer, who had been going to Hardy Amis always. And she was mm-hmm. appalled by having like, you know, 18 year old models all of a sudden, you know, modeling the, <laughs> the clothes. Yeah. And, the clothes. and she, she, it was just not what they wanted. So they, mm-hmm. they, some clients came to La Chasse. Mm-hmm. So the clients we had, they were all very old, yeah, mm-hmm. 70s, 80s, 90s. Mm-hmm. And they had been going there since they were young. They had mm-hmm. the same... It's very tricky to date a La Chasse suit because mm-hmm. they basically did the same thing all the way along. You, you can't say, is it... Is it 1952? Is it 1967? Or is it from mm-hmm. the 80s? It was that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. And um, interesting, interesting cuts mm-hmm. and use of color and pattern. Um, this is something that I, that I picked. So I basically learned a lot about cutting there, mm-hmm. um, which previously I was sort of self-trained in. Mm-hmm. Um, I never did a formal training in in pattern cutting. You mentioned the um, the German uh, cutting systems earlier, like Müller and uh, Sun, yeah, which are um, well known, you know, mm-hmm. worldwide. But um, I, I have never done that, and um, so I learned. I learned from uh, the tailor we had. He was in his seventies, late seventies. He was the head tailor at La Chasse. Mm-hmm. Um, the workroom was quite small. We had four tailors then, mm. um, and we would get we would get designs from the from the head, and then had to had to prepare the cut and prepare the the, the jackets for um, for the fittings. So I was basically mm-hmm. working on just jackets and coats. The skirts mm-hmm. were made in the in the dressmaking department. I see. So yes, I learned I learned a lot there. Um, again, the way they worked were were quite different from what I had from what I had uh, trained. Mm-hmm. And um, there was an old tailoress there. She had been working there so for like forty years, and she said, "Oh, in Mister Owen's days, things were much better, and you know, we used to do this and this yeah. and that." And you know, um, I actually I want to ask you something. I was talking to. To another tailor and and i said uh if you could make a change to the tailoring industry what would that be and he said go back a hundred years now mm-hmm. 
I hear that a lot. A lot of people like the older ways of doing things. When I was doing my apprenticeship, my boss would tell me all the time, back in the days, the Italians were doing this, the, the Greek were doing that. Why do you think that there is so much demand and desire for the old ways of doing things? Whereas logically, if you think about it, we are moving towards the future and we are improving things all the time. Yeah. Why do craft people still want to go back to the old golden days? Okay. Mm. Um, I have thought about this a lot um, mm. because I, I do things the old-fashioned way. Um, mm. I do a lot of hand finishings that other people don't do. I mean, yes, very good old traditional head tailors do it, but um, a lot of people don't. Um, the designer I mentioned when I first came to London, he hated anything that looked hand-finished or handmade. <laughs> he had a total aversion. And he, um, so for example, when we made suits, the suits were usually silk and eveningy sort of thing. Mm. So to catch down the seam allowance on the inside of the facing, you know, when you do a hand quick stitch, <clears throat> yeah, so we were not allowed to do that. Uh, we had to do a, a top stitch by machine, which oh, right. couture is a no is a no go. Yeah, yeah. So there's no machine stitch unless it's a it's a decorative top stitching. You're not supposed to see any machine mm -hmm. stitching you know, on the outside. And um, you know, just he he had his own ways of of how he wanted things finished. He wanted it to look like really luxury ready to, ready to wear is finished mm -hmm. um so there was obviously in history there was a there was a gradual change as mm -hmm. as things progressed um so sewing machine came out in the 1850s mm -hmm. um but 100 years later people were still doing a lot of hand finishings okay mm -hmm. the lining jackets and buttonholes so by by the 50s you already had machines for that sort of thing as well mm -hmm. um so the, the question is yes why do why do you keep on doing this um mm. when when now you know there's machines that make you a, a jetted pocket you know it's mm -hmm. all automized and mm -hmm. automated um i mean my my thing my theory is or my 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 feeling is that something that is handmade has an intrinsic value to it mm -hmm. um which you cannot compare with something that is machine made mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it might not be as perfect mm -hmm. uh, but that's the hallmark of something that is hand finished how so, would you describe I mean, the intrinsic value? If you had to describe the intrinsic value, what would you say that that is? Um, it um, it has something of the person that makes it goes into the garment. That's mm -hmm. that's the feeling I have. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, I, yeah. I can't. It's difficult to describe, but it's. Um, mm, Yeah, it's almost like it's almost like um, there, there's this connection. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yes, and the value, the value. So, uh, I think I think nowadays the 
the so just another example so nowadays mm -hmm. food grown you know food you have this mm -hmm. ecologically grown vegetable or you know it's a, i don't know it's a it's a rare mm -hmm. species of apples that you don't get anymore and it's a rare breed of beef and that sort of thing mm -hmm. and it's it's sort of the label of special is is put to things and in like in recent years this has become applied to things like i know couture chocolates i mean which mm -hmm. is a stupid expression you know um but it it is it basically defines something that this is this is just how things were naturally mm -hmm. yes mm -hmm. things used to be made by hand things mm -hmm. bread used to be baked and made by hand it's it, it was always artisan bread but now it's a mm -hmm. it's a brand that mm -hmm. makes things something special because mm, mass production has taken over mm -hmm. does that make sense mm -hmm. so so the, the people people think something that is handmade and goes back to how things used to be made is somehow more valuable mm -hmm. And I would I would agree to a certain extent um, because you know a lot of love and care goes into the making of something. Mm. So I I get the feeling that when we are thinking about the the tension between uh, automation and uh, mass industries, let's say, and we then compare the handcraft to that i guess that a lot of people feel that if automation takes over completely it almost steals something from from the human uh, which you know if you bring it into philosophy you can say um, it's as if we are selling our soul in return for convenience and mm -hmm. and efficiency now yeah. at the same time i'm thinking also about the fact that so I had this discussion with my dad a lot. He's a painter. And uh, sometimes when he when he's uh, sketching something out, he uses a projector. When it's like a very big painting, for example, yeah. he uses a projector, it makes it yeah. easy for himself. Yeah. And I've always said to him, look, uh, I don't mind the fact that you're doing this, but don't you think that if you would talk to some of the older masters, they would tell you off. They would be like, hey, man, you should but, do it by hand. And he said... They did, it, they did it as well. Exactly. So he yes. said... He said... Yeah, they, had this, they had this grid. Um, yeah, 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 could, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> Exactly. So he, he told me, like, look, if there is a tool that can make your work easier without mm -hmm. sacrificing the end result, you should use it. Because, you know, yes, you can, you know, make... Uh, I don't know, make a house by clay and by hand completely. But if you can make a brick maker and turn your clay into brick then you obviously can create a better house so so then my question is if we have the old ways of doing things and we have the new ways of doing things how is it that most tailors don't really try to separate the good stuff from the old ways and incorporate the good stuff from the new ways so that it's not just, oh, we only machine the longer seams by machine and everything else we do by hand, but they can also say easily and comfortably, look, this machine makes better jetted pockets 
than we do by hand. So mm -hmm. we might as well use this and spend our time on, for example, doing the shoulders and the sleeves by hand instead of, uh, you know, just the edge stitching or the buttonholes. Why do you think we haven't still got that selection of the best from both worlds? I mean, I think as it is, it, the two exist alongside, yes? Mm. So you have big factories who produce, you know, excellent quality jackets, for example, mm -hmm. using the newest technology, you know, they have, they have shapes that press the jackets on into shape and there's no more, you know, iron working to do because mm. it's all done mechanically. And mm -hmm. um, yes, I mean, to me, as a, as a, as a maker, mm -hmm. um, I, of course. So I'm talking really selfishly now. So sure. of course, I wouldn't. I wouldn't like to work in a factory operating a machine mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that does something. Yes. Um, and also mass production. Um, I enjoy treating each individual project mm -hmm. like like. You know something that you that you go through step by step, mm -hmm. um, where things also can change, of course, with the client designs. And so, if it's a bespoke thing, then it's it is it's something very different. Mm -hmm. um, and I enjoy, I enjoy mm -hmm. that. Um, I enjoy the design. I enjoy the the working out the pattern. I enjoy the making. Mm -hmm. the finishing and it makes me happy when the client is happy mm -hmm. this is this is all you don't have this um, for example when you when you have a, a machine uh, completely machine mm. made garment now not everybody can do what i do mm -hmm. you know that's, yes. that's the way it is um mm -hmm. you know, i've i feel quite um mm, I wouldn't say privilege, but like it's it's a bit of a luxury for me to be able mm -hmm. to do what I do. Yes, yes. Given, given sort of, I can even sometimes say no. I don't want to do this. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. so for example, I don't. I I do men's. I do men's suits. I do have mm -hmm. you know male male uh, clients, um, but I don't really enjoy making gray or navy blue suits. Mm -hmm. I, I can do it but it's not it's not really there's other people who who, mm -hmm. who enjoy doing it probably yes yes would you it's, say would you say that perhaps craft is for the artisan first and then for the client because mm -hmm. I think the joy element what you bring up is very important yes yes you know yes Yes, well, there's the word art in artisan, mm -hmm. and I think it's like you know, it's like a painter who enjoys painting, and then someone buying it is is not the whole point of painting. It is mm -hmm. it is an added added bonus if someone does buy it, but the process mm -hmm. is is not aimed at necessarily. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, for me, I I you know, I have to I have to work. Um, yes. I can't retire just yet. So <laughs> it's sort of, it's sort of, um, it's not an issue because I enjoy what I'm doing, mm -hmm, you know? Mm -hmm. So 
Um, yeah, I've, I, I do. The feedback I get from clients is they, they really feel they enjoyed being involved in the process, in the, mm -hmm. in the, in the creative process and, and yeah. seeing, seeing how something is done step by step. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it, it's the, the client as well who, who benefits from it, as opposed to going into a shop and buying something off the rack. Yeah, yeah. Okay, now I, I have to ask you about this, because um, it would be weird to in interview you and not ask about this. You were involved in the Phantom Thread. And yes. Daniel Day-Lewis is absolutely what is my favorite actor all time. This is just uh, it's a shame that he didn't make more films and he retired, uh, you know, uh, quickly. But how was that? Uh, how was that project? How were you approached? How did you uh, manage to kind of like schedule everything? What was your involvement? Uh, I really would like to know how that went. Okay. Um, <clears throat> it was um, okay. So. Denny Day Lewis was one of my favorite actors too, ever, ever since seeing my beautiful laundrette. So that you, yeah. were, you were you were not alive alive then, I don't <laughs> think. But um, so yes, he made very few films, but he, he he's a fantastic actor and um, absolutely, yeah. I I, I I always liked him. So um, okay, so this whole project came about by me getting a call um, by the costume supervisor. Um, asking if I was interested in making a suit for this film. Mm -hmm. um, and um, I said, of course, and I, I, I asked, you know, can you tell me a little bit more about it? And um, I also, of course, wanted to know who had recommended me or to, uh, yes. Yeah, so um, it was basically a student of mine who, mm -hmm. I, who had done a course with me at London College of Fashion mm -hmm. probably eight years prior wow. to Phantom Thread, yes. Mm -hmm. So um, she thought about me, oh, Thomas would be perfect person for this. Yeah. And um, so this is how this came about. Now, I mentioned um, earlier I was at Cockpit Arts in Bloomsbury. Mm -hmm. um, and the studio for the, the costumes were, was basically based at the old um, St. Martin's building in, um, in Kingsway. So right mm -hmm. at the top. So we're talking two minutes away from my studio. Mm -hmm. So um, I went over there like a week later or something and um, met, I met the woman who had recommended me. I didn't know at this time she was also working on it. She was basically the head cutter for mm -hmm. the ladies' dresses. Her, her background, she's French, and her background was um, also couture from her, her mother. So she was mm -hmm. doing all those things. And then they were looking for someone who, had, who were, was going to make this 1950s suit. Because have you, you've seen the film, I'll take it. Yes, yes. yes. So to me, it was, um, it was just up my street because it was basically... It was set in the 50s in the Couture House, something which I had like experienced firsthand, obviously not in the 50s, but mm -hmm. in the 80s, it was still like in the 50s, you know? Yes, yes, so, yes. Um, it was something that was like really close to me. And um, 
So the designs we looked at as well. Um, so mm -hmm. I met then Mark Bridges, the, the designer behind it. Um, and um, there was a lot of there was a lot of designs which was from the designers of the 50s in, in mm -hmm. it was set in London. So there was lots of La Chasse as well. Mm -hmm. um, um, so we looked at these things and um, as you might know, they're not allowed to just copy something. Mm -hmm. So there was, for example, um, a suit planned for the, the fashion show scene, which was um, um, more or less uh, a design Grace Kelly's wedding suit, something like that, mm -hmm. in a beautiful lace, and they they weren't allowed to to do this design in the end because it was mm -hmm. too close to the original. I I can't remember the whole story, so we had to kind of adapt the designs, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and um, yeah, I, I I came up with some suggestions and how we can how we can do this. So then. It was supposed to be just the one suit. This is often how it happens in, in costume jobs. And then the designers appreciate what you do. They realize they, they you know, you have someone who can do this sort of thing. And then it became another suit and another one and another one. So I think I made 12, 12 wow. outfits altogether. Yes. For I did, I did um, all the suits for, um, for his um, sister in in the film, mm -hmm. I made Danny Day Lewis's um, linen jacket, his lab coat, the white one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. So that that was my one, and I, I made him a trench coat, which he said he doesn't wear in the film. Ah, oh, um, that's a shame. Yeah, so yeah. you made all of these by yourself, or did you have a team with you who made? No, I you? had. I had. Because it was so much, I had to mm -hmm. I had to um, get some help. Yes, so mm -hmm. yeah. What so was I the time the limit? Um, I think it was over a period of three months. Okay, and you I had to do everything in three months. Yes, yeah. I think we started in January, February, and then it went on to like sort of May time. Mm -hmm. I think that's what it was, um, and. So yes, there's a scene with the fashion show, and that's when it became really frantic, you know. Mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. So yes, I had. He, people uh, I've, I've, I've heard or read that he is kind of like pretty hands-on when when he's making a film, as you know, and he really just goes into the acting for like seven months or a, a full year. Yeah. Did yeah. he? And and I think. I read that he also apprenticed someone to learn how to make a coat or something. Uh, did you see him during that production uh, being involved in the fittings or whatsoever? Um, um, when I think he had done some kind of tuition with someone mm -hmm. and he had made a dress for his wife, I believe. Right. Right. Prior to the film or in preparation to the film. So he's mm -hmm. a, he's a, um, you know, he goes into his role and he, he really takes things very seriously. Yeah, so yeah. he plays in character as well. So when we mm -hmm. saw him on set, you know, it was good morning, Mr. Reynolds, you know. <laughs> um, so, and um, 
yeah, I didn't, I didn't, um, he was, because my atelier was very close to where mm. he sometimes came for the costumes, fittings and things, they had actually planned to bring him over to my, to my, um, to my studio, but sadly it didn't because they got held up. I think they went jewelry shopping in Hatton Garden uh, for things, and so yeah. yeah, unfortunately, never came to my to my uh, studio. But um, mm. yeah, I had to go to to fittings um, in the Cotswolds where he was mm-hmm. um, filming the the scenes of the country house, and mm-hmm. um, he was very involved in the and very interested. Mm-hmm in the whole design process. So there was there was Mark Bridges and then the, the costume supervisor. There was there was Reynolds Woodcock as mm-hmm. the designer and he would make suggestions as to colors and he would say, oh how about this and this. So it was almost as if he was mm-hmm. you know there yeah, yeah, from, yeah, the yeah. from the fifties <laughs> and like doing this. Strange, very interesting. It was, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was interesting. Yes, mm-hmm. definitely a special experience. Now, obviously, you said something a few minutes ago about couture chocolate. Yes. <laughs> now, you know, you know about the world of couture, and you also know about the world of tailoring. If if I would ask you, Thomas, what is the main difference between these two? When can someone call themselves a couturier? When can someone call themselves a tailor? What would you say? Um, I think the main difference, I would say, is uh, couture is more for ladies. There's no mm. men's couture, except um, I think Oswald Boateng has it. The bespoke couture he calls this brand or something, which is re- I mean really silly the, this this uh, label. But um, yes, I, I think traditionally couture refers to ladies, not just tailoring, mm-hmm. dressmaking too. So a couturier used to be someone. Um, couture apparently only exists since eighteen sixties, House of Worth, mm-hmm. when they started making individual garments, mm-hmm. present them to um, to potential clients and then making it to specific designs. Whereas mm-hmm. um, before then, well, from what, from what I researched is people used to go to tailors and, and supply them with the fabric and say, here, make me a, a coat or, or, or mm-hmm. whatever. So, and then, and then, it became more specialized. So you had um, houses in London and in, in, in Paris and, and Italy who were then specializing in different different types of the trade. So mm-hmm. like La Chasse was sporty clothing, sports mm-hmm. couture. Mm-hmm. You also had um, people specialized in, let's say, evening dresses or equestrian. Mm-hmm. So... Um, it's a sort of mm, transient. I mean, now a couturier can be a tailor, but a tailor is not necessarily a couturier because mm-hmm. couture refers more to dresses as well. You say it's a couture dress. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the houses in Paris, uh, those who are still there, they, mm-hmm. they are couture houses, but they do offer 
tailoring in in not in the strict sense of of several row tailoring. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It is it, there's a there's a difference between the, the couture tailoring in in let's say Paris and and hard tailoring for for mm-hmm. gents. Um, and would you say that the collections that uh, a, a formal couture house has to uh, um, let's say bring out uh, is that absolutely a, a requirement uh, and if you don't have the collections you can't call yourself a couture house or is that not something that uh... well in 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 france it is a protective <clears throat> um you can't call yourself a, a haute couture house mm-hmm. unless you uh, um fulfill certain requirements so mm-hmm. i think they have been relaxed a few years ago mm-hmm. um as to how many models you have to present in a in a single show it used mm-hmm. to be it used to be something like i think 80 or something per season you have to present them to the to the press and the clients um there had to be there had to be certain uh, how many people you were employing in your atelier mm-hmm. uh, where you were based that sort of thing it all it all quite quite tricky but it's the same with several row you know you can be a an excellent tailor but not be in several row and, and still you know, call yourself a several row tailor <laughs> yes actually yes isn't it isn't it um, <laughs> i can't remember who it is but yes you're not in several row but you're a several row tailor yeah sure yeah. why not <laughs> so, um yeah i mean it's it's um well you know the question is are regulations good Because you mentioned in the, in the beginning of our conversation that in Germany you had all the guilds, they were strict. Yeah. Do you think that it's good to have a, a, a regulatory uh, entity or an institution that sets the standards and then makes sure that not everyone can just do whatever they want? Mm. In a way, I think yes. But for example, um, so... In Germany, it used to be that you could not open an establishment offering bespoke clothing unless you had been an apprentice, a journeyman, and then had done your master tailor right. examination run by the guild. Okay. This is how it used to be. People got round it by um, offering alterations. Okay. Mm-hmm. So they would open an, an alteration tailoring business mm-hmm. and then they would tell their clients, oh, and by the way, I can make you this right. and this. So it was right. sort of undercounter kind mm-hmm. of thing. And I don't know how, how strictly it was policed, but I think you could get into trouble if they found out that you were offering this service. This, I think, is now more relaxed. Mm-hmm. I, I heard this a few years ago that you you now can offer... Um, to make uh, bespoke clothing without having uh, gone through this through this process mm-hmm. i mean a few years ago i looked into um there is a something called the guild of master craftsmen british guild of master craftsmen or something mm-hmm. i looked into it in london you mean or in britain yeah in britain yes and yeah. um All you needed to do was to send them a link to your website so they could have a look at what you were doing and then you had mm. to pay a subscription. Interesting. 
yeah, so you could be a, a, a mass, well, you could call yourself a master carpenter or something or mm-hmm. silversmith or something. But um, from what I understood was there was, there were no experts who, who actually would look at your work in detail and, and would decide, yes, you are worthy mm-hmm. of becoming a member of our guild. And I thought, mm-hmm. well, if anyone can join it, then it, there's no value, there's no benefit in it. Yes. So the, the client might see the logo, which you then allow to use on your, sure. I don't know, stationary website, whatever, but I mean... It doesn't have know. much meaning. Exactly, yeah. So, well, this is so one of the, the dilemmas that I've been thinking about, and I'm actually speaking to someone uh, on the podcast with them, is that <clears throat> um, SRBA, Savaro Bespoke Association, uh, is, I believe, still active, but um, I cannot understand how you can have Savaro Bespoke Association still active and at the same time have so many tailors using the name Savaro, even like uh, like you say, alteration tailors would, would yep. say things like, we yep. have Savaro quality. Um, it's a very strange dynamic, but uh, mm. like you say, having just a logo there doesn't really make it official. Mm-hmm. So, mm. Yes. Yeah, anyone can call themselves a, a couturier <laughs> or even master tailor. I don't think it's protected um, mm-hmm. um, uh, at all, in, not mm-hmm. in this country anyway. Mm-hmm. So um okay okay well well let's let's cover the last topic and then I'll do a speed round with you which I'd like to do. So uh, obviously we are talking about standards we are talking about uh, anyone being able to you know set up a shop or whatsoever but at, I think at the foundation of all of that is of course can a tailor uh, deliver on what they promise and and to mm-hmm. to be able to do that yeah. one needs a very good education. Yeah. So um, you are an educator. You have uh, videos extensively on how to do, do all these different types of garments, these different types of techniques, styles. Plus, you have what seventeen years of teaching experience just at uh, uh, LCF. It was correct. Yes, I was also doing a project at the Royal College. <coughs> um, I was visiting. Um, Royal College of Speech and Drama in Cardiff. I mm-hmm. went to a fashion school in India to do some faculty training. And right. I was supposed to go to China uh, just before the pandemic hit. Um, ah, so see. obviously that never, that never came about. It was going to five different branches in China. And, but there's no way I'm, I'm doing this now. So. <laughs> no, well, um, you wanted to go to the pandemic, but the pandemic came to you. So. <laughs> that's it. Uh, that's right. Yes. <laughs> Yes. I mean, the educational side I also um, in, enjoyed. And mm-hmm. um, the yes, the, the videos you mentioned. So 10 years ago, I, I published a book, um, mm-hmm. Vintage Couture Tailoring, which there was nothing on the market then, which was in as much detail. So it's, um, mm-hmm. it's, there's basically illustrations of every step of making a couture jacket mm-hmm. the way I learned to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's still, it's still the, the sales have actually gone up now. I think they put a new cover on it last year. That was reprinted. So, yeah. so that's that's it's good, it, and it it's, it it goes to show there is demand um, mm-hmm. for people wanting slow tailoring as opposed mm-hmm. to you know. 
yeah, yeah, yeah. I I would guess the market is is more hobby um, hobby sewists mm-hmm. um, who who appreciate quality. Mm-hmm. Um, I had I had also scheduled. Um, um, a, a three-week education for 2020, which of course um, didn't happen. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a this was a workshop. This was one week going to London and Paris to archives of the VNA and museums and uh, suppliers, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I thought, what can you do? This you, you can't do this now. So. People have been telling me, "Oh, Thomas, you must be you must be doing some you know video uh, things." And um, mm. so it had been on my radar, but I mean, the 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 COVID thing has really then kicked me up the backside to get mm. to get going on it. And that's mm-hmm. so I did this last year, and then I have these like five online masterclasses where mm-hmm. shown. Um, so that's that had very good feedback. Um, and it's it's um, it's sort of between face to face teaching, mm-hmm. as in yeah, yeah, the real world, and and the book. Um, it's kind of in between, mm-hmm. but I think it's it's good for people who I don't know can't come to London or live somewhere or are elderly or I don't know. Mm-hmm. It, it 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 is. Um, I think it's something. Suits that suits some people. Mm-hmm. Yes, yes, definitely. Um, so my plan is to I- expand on it, have a few more subjects, and then and then. Mm. Yeah, I th- I think um, education is a good education is is as scarce as a as an apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. I mean. Um, I don't know even if if I know there's there's companies in Britain offering apprenticeships. Um, mm-hmm. I, I've heard of um, uh, a few, and not not only London. Mm-hmm. I can't comment on on how how good and thorough they are, mm-hmm. but college. I'm not sure how I. Uh, you, so you went to Newham, you mentioned earlier, yes? Yeah, I initially started at Newham. There was a very short course of uh, what they called pre. Pre-apprenticeship, that's what they called it. Yeah. It was just yeah. like 18 weeks. And then after that, well, during that time, uh, I went to Savaro and I did my actual apprenticeship there on Savaro. Yeah. And did you did you find it beneficial? Did you learn a lot? Well, yes, for, I think so. I think that I had a very good teacher at Newham who is not there anymore. But mm-hmm. he, de- he, the things that he taught were universal. So, for example, um, when I was sewing one day, he walked past me and he said, you have to pull the thread quicker. And so it doesn't matter where you're working. You can use that anywhere, you know. So uh, it wasn't that he was very strict on this is how you make a pocket. He, you know, he would tell us if you go to Savoro, if you go to a tailor, they would tell you what to do. But this is a method. But he just mm-hmm. gave good advice, you know. He was he was mm-hmm. like an, uh, you know, you could tell he has experience in training students up, and so he would try to give you as many universal things as possible. However, yeah. I do have to say that now, if I think about Newham and the things I hear about Newham and what they are teaching, it seems to me that if you don't have a good teacher, 
doesn't matter what they are teaching. If the teacher can't train the student to prepare for another place or another workshop or whatsoever, then it's almost useless because, yeah, well, you, you might as well learn from a book, let's say. You know what I mean? Yeah. Without the yeah. teacher with you. Yeah, I, I mean, this is what I, I mean, I, I know some people who also went to, to Neum or have been to other, um, like, fashion colleges. And um, mm. what one of the things that I that I gathered was they, they are not prepared for real life out there. Yes, yes. Life in the industry. And, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, just just made me laugh when he said uh, pull pull your <laughs> yeah. I mean, we where I trained, they they asked you to keep records. I mean, not of the apprentices, but the the the, the cutter and the um, the journeyman. They had to keep records of how long they would work on a certain garment. Mm -hmm. And there was there was in the guilds. I mean, for the for the examination, you had certain times to do certain mm -hmm. things. So mm -hmm. I remember one of them, and it was lining a jacket by hand. Yeah. It was two hours. The whole thing? Yes. Wow, including cut, Including cutting out. So okay. you had to cut out. Well, in ladies' jackets, that's you fast. don't have pockets inside. So it's, mm -hmm. a, it's a bit quicker. And, you know, we, they machined the side seams, but the shoulders closed by hand, and, of mm -hmm. course, facings and hem all, all done by hand, and the... The sleeves by hand, but you know it's um, mm -hmm. two hours. It's, it's not. It's not very long. No, it isn't. Um, so yeah, when I, when I did my my examination, um, that was a bit of a shock because mm -hmm. I kind of had arrived in the in the real world. Um, yeah, yeah, I can imagine. So Thomas, based on your experience, uh, what do you think that our our bespoke tailoring industry? needs the most in terms of education i mean there are so many courses now there are so many schools there's so many books there is everything but mm. if you had to choose something and you would say look out of all these things this is the most important thing what would you say that is i think it depends on what the person who is going to learn wants out of it Mm -hmm. If it's someone who wants to work in the industry or plan to open their own business mm -hmm. as, a, as an end goal, mm -hmm. um, also my first advice would be to not rush things. Mm -hmm. So learn to walk before you run. Mm -hmm. Because I had, I had students... Um, doing a course with me at LCF for a week and they and they said well and then and then in six months I'm gonna open my own business. Yes you will <laughs> good luck. <laughs> um I mean the difficulty I think also is even if you are able to learn the technical things mm -hmm. so the, the tailoring process you still have the the problem of cutting, which is in effect a separate profession. Okay? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. And the fitting, I mean, you can be a wonderful tailor, but if you can't fit, then mm -hmm, the garment mm -hmm. is not gonna look good, is it? Yeah. So you have these different you have these different professions. And um, so you know, of course you have in several row you have pressers, yeah. All they do yes. is pressing and it's it's um it's a wonderful skill, but 
as a as a if you want to do everything you have to really it will take a while mm -hmm. so i know of the several academy yes yeah, a small set well isn't it yes Doing yes it? yes yeah. so obviously that's that's a very good thing um i I don't know anyone who's done it, but I have visited it and uh, mm -hmm. I spoke to some students, but I, I don't know what exactly you have at the end and what your prospects are to then get a place somewhere to work. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure. Um, it also depends, of course, where you are. You know, mm -hmm. it's... Um, obviously, the best is to work as you learn, as you work somewhere. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. True. Um, but I'm not sure where, yeah, I'm not sure where the future goes for, for mm -hmm. the craft itself. I mean, I, I hear, especially now I work in film more, there is mm -hmm. complaints that there's a lack of skilled people. Mm -hmm. Um which in a way is good for people like me because you you will always have a job yeah mm -hmm. it's um, but to to get to this stage you have to you know mm -hmm. have to learn things first so it's it's yeah i'm not i'm not sure what my advice would be no well it makes sense what well, you're you're giving actually the the right thing you're saying the right thing because Every student is in a different place. They have different motivations. They have different goals. And so I think what you're saying basically is know exactly what you want and also how you can learn the things if you break them down. So like you say, pressing is, you know, you think like, oh, yeah, I'm a tailor. I'm already pressing. But to actually learn pressing, you have to just spend a, a, perhaps a few months on it and just do pressing because pressing mm -hmm. is difficult. I ha I'm a code maker by training but even i sometimes i'm like oh man how am i gonna press this you know this is just like i don't want to flip it inside out and then you know i don't want to do this but now i have to do that so it's not yeah. easy uh, especially oh. when you're dealing with all these different segments um well um one one of the um one of the businesses i came across um and i'm not sure they exist anymore there were there were two businesses in in Dusseldorf, when I did my apprenticeship, I had to bring couture garments to this dry. There was a specialist dry cleaner, mm -hmm. two specialist dry cleaners, and all the wealthy people would only go mm -hmm. to these two dry cleaners. Right. So you could bring a ball gown in a bin liner, crumpled up mm -hmm. and filthy from you know street. I don't know. Someone had been <laughs> a drinking party and yeah. you know um and you would pick it up and it would look like new yeah and isn't I thought, that something how the hell do yeah. they do yeah. that yeah it's incredible because i couldn't do it i mean i couldn't press something like that and i yeah. it, it is just a, a total miracle yeah um and um there was there was someone in in london as well i think in in south kensington there was a lady she an old lady, and she was semi-retired, but some of the designers used to go there, and she would know how to get any kind of mark out of a out of mm -hmm. a fabric. She had sort of potions for everything, and this is um, they they said, um, well, we we 
when I retire, then there's no one who will be able to do this mm -hmm. because we we can't find someone to train. Mm -hmm. Okay, so and I think this is this is a, a problem because mm -hmm. all the young people now they from what I gather is they they want to become designers, but they don't yeah. actually want to. They actually mm -hmm. don't want to make. Very very difficult. Um, yeah. Well, I hope that with all the resources that are coming out in terms of uh, craftsmanship, tailoring, etc., people are getting more interested in, 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 mm. the whole, in the whole spectrum, let's say. Yes, yes. I mean, it is mm -hmm. such, it's such a wonderful craft that we, that we have, and it's, it's so worth preserving. And mm -hmm. you know, having, this link, having this link to the past, um, keeping, that, keeping that going, even though there, is, there might be new technologies that come in and, maybe mm -hmm. taken over but it, it's it's um i think it's good to to preserve the the knowledge and skills that that are out there definitely mm -hmm. yeah one of my theories is that you know if we are lucky we get to know our parents if we're uh, more lucky we get to know our grandparents if we are really lucky we get to know our great great grandparents yeah. and then and then and beyond that if you want to connect to yourself and your family and your ancestry, uh, you only have the traditions and the crafts and the and the skills that remain and the stories. And so, for us to learn, you know, the bringing it back to our conversation of why is everything old better is because yeah. it connects us to a part of us that is just lost and gone. I was very lucky. I was one of those very lucky ones in that I knew both my great grandmothers, maternal right. and paternal. Um, wow. My great grandmother, a maternal one, she was born eighteen eighty nine. Okay, and she died when I when I was seven years old. So you, so, it was your mother's grandmother. Wow. No, my 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 mother's father's mother. Your mother's father's mother. Okay. Wow. Wow. Huh. And my my father's father's mother's <laughs> father. Uh, sorry, my mother's. <laughs> oh God, my father's mother's mother. Your so father's was, mother's mother. Wow, great grandmother. Yeah. So um, she was born 1907. So I knew her. She died uh, in in the early 80s. And um, it's it's funny you mention uh, ancestry as well because um, I um, obviously I knew my grandparents then. Mm -hmm. Um, and my grandmother, so my mother's mother, she had, her family came from Alsace-Lorraine, which mm -hmm. is now France, but it used to be part of Germany before the first world war. Right. And both her father and grandfather were tailors. Mm. And I actually have a photograph of her father. Mm -hmm. A very old, worn, black and white photograph um, yeah. him in his workshop. Wow! Wow! So it's it's um it's it's wonderful to to have that, and it's it's somehow maybe it went down in the genes. I don't know. Yes. Oh, absolutely. I I definitely believe that. Yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. There you go. Okay. All right. Well, are you ready for a speed round? So, I have a bunch of words. And if you can tell me in one word the first thing that comes up your mind, okay? Okay. Düsseldorf. Family. 
family. Ladies tailoring. Couture. Okay. Competition. Mm. Effort. <laughs> Effort. Being self-taught. Um, being self-taught. Achievement. Achievement. Regulation. Restriction. Restriction. Standards. Quality. Wow. Apprenticeships. Learning. Learning. The essence of couture. In one word? Yes. <laughs> Quality. Quality. All right. I'm repeating myself, but that's the only that's the only word that uh, comes sure. to mind. Yeah. No, that's fine. Savile Row. Gent tailoring. Most difficult thing in tailoring. Cutting. Cutting. Daniel Day-Lewis. <laughs> Phantom Thread. <laughs> okay. La Chasse. Old World. Old World. Uh, oh, uh, tailoring books. Tailoring books. My one. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good one. Love it. And then last but not least, Thomas von Nordheim. Taylor. Taylor. All right. Well, Thomas, thank you very much. This has been a pleasure. And I've been looking forward to have this conversation for a long time. So thank you for, for enabling that. Thank you, Reza. You're very welcome. And that was Thomas. I hope you all enjoyed the conversation as much as I did. If you'd like to see more of Thomas or you'd like to get in touch with him, please follow the links in the description of this video to his Instagram, his website, and his masterclasses. If you have any thoughts, comments, suggestions, anything you'd like to share with us, please let us know in the comment section, and we hope to see you again in the next episode. Until then, bye-bye.